Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. If you know Elizabeth Chance, you know she goes by the name Busy. But until about 15 years ago, really all she was busy doing was getting drunk. Now, she's busy living sober. Literally. That's the name of her website, her podcast, and the title she uses doing work as a recovery coach. Her mission is to transform the stigma of addiction. So grateful we got to be a part of that. Nobody beats the biz. But first, Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. Hi. You are in stereo and you sound better than ever. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Isn't, I mean, is a couple of alcoholics get together, by the way. And this is Mike you're talking to. Hi, Mike. How are you? Do you have to, you have time for me today? Yes, I'm work. I'm. I, you guys went to all this trouble. I just. We, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Let's rock. How long do you normally do this for? About three hours. You ever, you ever listen to Joe Rogan? I do. I do. No, it's a, it'll, it'll be it'll, it'll be an hour probably. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. So we're going to start yeah, now. Yeah. Perfect. Want... Oh my God, I'm going to be late for this thing. I should have taken it. Okay. Well, All right, let's go. Let's, Giddy up. Let's, I've got a, I have a board meeting at four, and I see some more at five thirty. I'm just. What's the board meeting? What's the board meeting? I just got asked to sit on the board of a place called Starting Point, which is a mental health, behavioral health resource for people in North Florida, and it's a free resource for people. And they just asked me to be a board member, so I have a board meeting at at four o'clock today. All right. Well, let's get let's get on with it. Let's get to your let's get to your mental health. Uh, you. I think how long you've been so I remember I, re, I was in the room when you celebrated eight years. Are you that, recording now? Yeah, we've been recording the whole time. So, um, okay, so thanks for telling me. <laughs> I, I, I was in the room when you celebrated eight years, and, and I think that was eight years ago or, or seven years ago. How, what's, what's your sobriety date? August 14, 2006. Okay, so when, how long is that? I will have 15 years in August. God, God willing, as they say, right? God willing, as they say, exactly. Tell me about the first time you either got drunk or high. Okay, do you think I remember those details? I don't. I'm not one of those people who remembers. I do know that the first time my parents told me the first time I got drunk, I was two years old because I came from a family that had, my parents had a lot of cocktail parties. So, and that was big. I was born in 1968. So, you know, this 70s and um, you know during the 70s and early 80s people had a lot of cocktail parties. So my parents would have these fabulous cocktail parties and everybody would leave and there would be drinks all around the coffee table. And I was one day, my one night my dad said I drank all the leftovers that were on this table and I was like wobbling like a little girl a little toddler just totally drunk wobbling around the kitchen or around the living room which does not sound attractive and so um but then fast forward, I did not 
really start drinking till I was 13. And well, what, ha- what, what, hap- what happens when you start to drink? Well, I started drinking, and again, I was born in 1968, and I was in, in 13, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, so home of Anheuser-Busch, and I grew up in a suburb, a suburb just west of downtown St. Louis. And um, we, the kids that I hung out with, we all started drinking at like 13. We were on bikes and we went and we drank our parents' liquor. And because all of our parents drank, it was not like uncommon. And I think that when, at least for me, when I looked at grownups, especially, you know, women, and I guess men, they were all dressed up and they were drinking and they were so happy. And they were luxurious. You know, they had their cigarettes. And, you know, back then you could still smoke and it was kind of actually not frowned upon at all at that point. For sure. And so people would be smoking cigarettes and they would be drinking and they'd be lively and they'd be happy. And so when I was 13, we all would steal liquor from our parents and it was just so much fun. That's what we did. We drank our parents' liquor and it was in the summer. And I remember us being on bikes. And we'd ride our bikes to different people's houses. And on the weekends, we would all drink. And for me, I just loved it. And fortunately or unfortunately, I was a blackout drinker from day one. Now, I didn't know I was a blackout drinker until I got sober. But, um, you know, I did not remember most nights, you know, getting home, how I got home, what happened, that sort of thing. Because every time I drank, I would drink to an extreme. And... You've heard me say this, that I, it wasn't like I couldn't have one and I couldn't have 47. Like that was just me. Like once it started, I was off the races. When did you know you were an alcoholic? Was there any point along this journey before you got sober? And I want to stick with your evolution of your drinking, but was there a point when you're like, I'm blacking out, I'm, I'm an alcoholic? Well, I mean, I had it as like a fleeting thought. Now, mind you, that is the last thing in the world I want to be. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Now, I knew about alcoholism because both of my grandmothers, one Irish Catholic, one Jewish, were alcoholics. My parents used to talk about them in such derogatory way. They'd be like, they're alcoholics, they're alcoholics, they're alcoholics. So I knew the word alcoholic, and I'm using air quotes right now as I say that. I knew the word alcoholic, and it was like the last thing you wanted to be. You're like, oh my God, I don't want to be an alcoholic. So did I think about that I was an alcoholic? Well, yes, I had fleeting thoughts all the time that I was an alcoholic, but I never, ever even wanted to admit that I was even having that thought because, again, it was a horrible thing to be. You're a social butterfly. Were there consequences ever for you either socially or, or with the law or with school as you started to drink a lot? Oh, my God. I had lots of I, – I mean, I'm not going to get into all of them. I'm going to do the G-rated version, but, yeah, I had – I mean, at 18, I got a DUI. I had a brand new Porsche. The license plates weren't even on the car yet. And um, that was the first time at 18 my dad took me to rehab. And he said, all right, you have a drinking problem. Now, I will tell you the story, background, give you a little background. So I was at a party, and I had broken up with this guy. And the guy showed up at the party with a different girl. Now, mind you, I'd already bro- I had broken up with him. Yeah. But still, I was like, oh, my God. And I looked at my girlfriend and I said, we have to go. And we grabbed a 12-pack of Bud Light and I got in my car. And St. Louis is right on the border of Illinois, for those people who don't know that. And I drove from 
St. Louis into Illinois. I went back and forth over the Mississippi a couple times. And then I drove back to my area and I got off the highway and I hit a brand new Porsche. And I got out of a car with one high heel on and one high heel off. And because my parents were, especially my grandparents were specifically involved in St. Louis, they, they people kind of knew my last name. So I was like, don't you know who I am? And they were just like, yeah, we don't really care. Shut up and get in the car. Now, mind you, this is in the 80s, so it's totally different today. But they were like, shut up and get in the car. And I'm like, oh, my God. Dramatic, dramatic. And for, you know, Pete knows I'm very dramatic. So I ended up getting in the police car, and then I get to the police department, and I'm still screaming and yelling. And my father gets there. He picks me up. I go back to his house. I go pass out. I get up the next morning and he puts me in the car and I know, I'm like, he's getting on the highway. I'm like, why are you getting on the highway? And he's like, well, I'm taking you to rehab. And I'm like, what? And I try to jump out of the car while it's moving on a highway. And um, that didn't work, but I end up getting there. And I, now mind you, my parents at this point had had a divorce and they like their divorce was kind of like war of the roses, but nobody killed each other, unfortunately. <laughs> and so um, I was a master manipulator. So I could manipulate anybody to get what I wanted. Now I hadn't been, um, so I called my mother and I said, I, you know, I snuck a phone call. I don't even know how I snuck this phone call from the rehab center, my, from the rehab center. And I'm like, mom, dad has me at rehab. <laughs> and she was like, Oh my God. All right. I'll be right there. I'll be right there. So then she calls me again. She goes, all right, go to the bathroom and climb out of the window of the bathroom. And I said, okay. So I shimmy my way out. I get in the bathroom. I shimmy my way out the window. I jump down. I get out of the, I'm free. I'm out of the rehab. And I'm like, ah, and we never talk about it again. <laughs> you never talked about it. Your family is a little like mine, right? You kind of bury your head in the sand to issues like Kinda? that. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> Yeah. We've evolved <laughs> yeah. right over time. My family has with my, my alcoholism and with other members of my family, their alcoholism. But yeah, it was not talked about when we were younger because you mentioned when you grew up born in 68, not, nobody was really talking about it. Oh my God. It was like, I mean, you think about, I mean, now we've evolved so much now being 2021, but back then it, nobody talked about it. I mean, there were no real, I mean, there was one rehab outside of Pennsylvania. I'd heard about that. One of my grandmother's friends actually had gone to, and it was called chit chat. And now it's called Karen, but it was called chit chat. And it was like, Oh, they went away to the farm to dry out with what people did back then. So when I was taken to rehab in 1980, what must have been 86, 86 I was 1986 and it was still not like you know I had a couple friends that had been taken rehab as well and um but it wasn't like it is today by any stretch of imagination and no and families talking about it you know it's still not a really you know people are not willing to really talk about it that much today as much as I you know it's one of my missions in life is to change stigma associated with addiction and for me it's so hard because you know you you think because you live in a certain zip code an affluent zip code in America that you aren't supposed to have these problems right and I've heard recently that even if you come from one of these zip codes it's even harder to get sober than it is if you were to come from a different zip code because we have so many um, ways of getting around it. Do you know what I mean? Sure, Financially yeah. and sorts of things like that. Like it's very hard to get sober when you come from a family that doesn't want to change and doesn't want 
to admit what's going on and has been going on generationally. When you say those, you know, we talk about those zip codes, those affluent areas, do you think that it is, it is we, we have to admit it's changed a little bit, but it, do you think it's still pretty bad there? Like there's a lot of work to be done? Oh my gosh, I think, well, now today it's, it, it's everywhere, but I feel like, I think the whole system, the way the treatment is run, is it, it needs a revamp big time. And it's, um, and I think that in the affluent neighborhoods, it's, Still very hard, and because I'm a woman, I'm a mom, and I am very vocal about the fact that I'm sober, nine out of ten times I have somebody that I tell that I'm sober, and they will say to me, my son, my daughter, my cousin, my niece, my husband, my ex-husband, my ex-wife. So every person I know is afflicted with this disease, but people still are like, but I don't want anybody to know this, Elizabeth. Don't tell anybody. This is my secret. I don't want you to know my daughter's been to treatment or my daughter is in recovery, but I don't want you to tell anybody. I can't tell you how many people have, have, have talked to me about people in their family, exactly what you've talking about since, you know, I've opened up and it's uh it's a gift for us. Right. But for the, you, you also get to a window into, into kind of look, we talked about the barrier in the head in the sand. All right, I want to get back to you before we okay. go ahead and reconfigure the, the rehab structure of America. You're 18, you go to rehab and you escape. What, what happens after that? I mean, you, you, your mom, you talked about the manipulation. What's next? I didn't miss a beat. I'm the oldest of five kids. My mom had a second child when she was remarried. But um, I, so I went on my life. And my life, because, you know, there were certain things that I was supposed to, and I love to use the air quotes, supposed to do, right? You're supposed to get go to college and you're supposed to get married and you're supposed to get and marry the right person. You're supposed to go. So I, so I ended up, um, I left, uh, St. Louis in the middle of my senior year and moved to Philadelphia. And that was very, very, very difficult. Yeah. That, and, that had to be impossible. I think we have talked about that before. Just me knowing you for as long as I have for a kid, it's 18 to be uprooted like that. That could only have accelerated. I would think the drinking or, or anything to kind of the self-medication. Well, and Pete, it did. And not only did that do it, and I had never, I've never in my life, like today there's a lot of buzzwords that describe how you feel, like anxiety, anxious, I'm depressed, all these things. Now, in the 80s, nobody was using those buzzwords to describe how you're feeling. So I had no idea what a feeling was. So to say, how do you feel? Like my entire life was cold or hot. So I didn't feel anything. I was not, I, I did anything. Alcohol let me, I, I stayed alive. It kept me alive. I, cause I didn't have to feel. It was like, all right, I'm going to go out and I could be the chameleon. I put on the right outfits. I go to the right parties. I'd hang out with the quote unquote right people. And I drink and I drink and I drink. And that is what I did. I didn't, there was no, um, I had some bad things happen to me and um, especially at a party and being taken advantage of as a woman and bad repercussions happened because of that. And, um, but I didn't know how to deal with anything. I mean, today, 15 years in sobriety, it's a totally different story. But when I look back and I think about that time in my life, I kind of shudder. Still, I get red in my face. I start to tense up. I start to 
sweat when I think about those times in my life because I was a young person. I mean, and I had no idea how to do anything. My entire life was trying to get the checks on the checkbook. Yeah. So it was like, all right, so now we've moved to Philadelphia. I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? This is the worst place I've ever been. I, I'm from the Midwest, so I moved to the East Coast to an, another neighborhood that's like nice and whatever, but it was totally different from where I come from in the, in the Midwest and I didn't have any friends and all I did was like smoke weed and go to the 30th Street station and eat ice cream and try and find things that were similar to my life in St. Louis, but there was nothing similar. The people were totally different and, um, and it was hard, but all I, how I just, how I dealt was like, okay, when am I getting drunk again? How am I getting drunk again? Where am I getting weed? How am I getting weed again? It was all about how was I going to get my next high. How about relationships, like throughout this whole thing, like with with, with, with men? With men, I had, um, you know, I had a boyfriend or two. I had some boyfriends. Um, I was, um, it was, it, it was hard. It was, but I don't. It's so hard to describe what it was like to have a relationship with someone when you're really not truly present as a human being. So you don't really know what, which way is up. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. Right. You, you, you have relations with people, you know, you have personal relations, you have sexual relations with people, but you don't even know what you're doing. I had never even known. I mean, not to get even too personal, but like when I turned, when I had my, you know, the change when you're, you know, when you're like 13 and you get, you know, your, your friend comes from the first time, you know, your period comes from the first time and you're like, oh my God, what is going on? My mom handed me a book and she's like, here, read this book. This is what it is. Like, no one talked to me about what it was like to have a relationship. All I know is my parents had a really bad one and I didn't, and I learned stuff from watching TV soap opera like my life was not like a real person's life like yeah. I didn't know how to act around I mean I'd gone to dance class and I'd done like I'd hung out with the nicest and the fanciest people but I didn't know what how to be so when you so you're you're drinking and you're you're experiencing these bad relationships you didn't so your first meeting was or your first rehab was at 18 but you didn't get sober till when 37. 37. So what happens in that 19-year span? You're, you're kind of putting the checks on. You You have three beautiful kids. Um, okay, so I'm going to go backwards. So yeah. here we go. So I so to do the three, so in 19 years, so this is what happens. So I moved to Philadelphia. Um, uh, I, I lived there. I party there. I hated it there. I was like, what am I going to do? I ended up going college because a friend of mine said you should really look at Mount Vernon College. I'd never, I'd nobody took me to look at colleges. I didn't do any of that stuff. My mom, I just found this college. My friend, my friend Dina went to this college and she's like, you should come here. Mount Vernon said, in New okay. York? No, Mount Vernon College in Washington, D.C. Okay. It's all girls. It's no longer in existence. It's now part of George Washington University. Okay. But at that point, it was a small, all girls, liberal arts college on Foxhall Road. Mount Vernon College. It's now, and now it's called George Washington University at Mount Vernon campus. Okay. So I go to finishing school with girls and it's all these girls. And by happenstance, some girls I grew up with in St. Louis were also there. My oldest best friend who is also now sober to this day and her, her brother was my first boyfriend in my entire life. But anyway, she was there. She was at Mount Vernon. 
and some other girls in my class were at Mount Vernon as well. Are you so drinking I a lot at Mount Vernon? Oh my God, Mount Vernon was, it was all girls and it was perfect because it was all girls, but it's in Georgetown. So oh. now Georgetown, again, back in the day, was like third edition. It was totally different than it is today, but it was like the preppiest town. It was St. Almost Fire, that movie came out that year. You yeah, know, all yeah. those movies were like really big when I was coming. John Hughes' movies were like the, the bomb, right? And that For was sure. my life that I was living. Like, we were all crazy, blowing lines, going into D.C. My best friend, Nadine Yadai, who I'd met at Mount Vernon, you know, we went back years later She, because her grandmother had started the school, and she was giving a speech, and they said to her, did you guys ever, like, go out in Georgetown? The joke was, were we ever at Mount Vernon? I mean, we were out partying all the time, but it was all girls, so I didn't have to worry about what I was getting dressed in when I went to class. I could wear sweatpants, and, you know, I skated through. It was like I graduated, and I, with a communications degree, I don't even remember my graduation at this point. And I graduated and I was like, what am I going to do now? The last thing I wanted to do was go to Philadelphia. I was like, I cannot go back to Philadelphia. My family of origins, really dramatic, really traumatic. I did not want to go back there. So I went to Colorado. A lot of my friends were at Boulder. They hadn't graduated yet. I graduated in May. They were graduating in August of that year. So they had summer school. And so I drove from Washington to Boulder. Boulder. Boulder by myself. I went to Boulder and I hung out with all my girlfriends and partied my butt off. I partied my butt off. I did crazy stuff out in Colorado. We went to like, we just partied all of us all together all the time. I partied, party, party. I didn't even really work. I didn't even work. I dropped the trans. I remember we were driving up to Breckenridge one day and I dropped the transmission in my car and like that fell out. I mean, but I got myself in situations with men that weren't appropriate. I had, it was insane. It's it was, kind of a scary was, time as somebody who, whether you go to high school or whether you go to college, the moment you are away from that situation, that structure, it can, for an alcoholic or a drug addict or both, it, that can be a real dicey situation. It was insane, Pete. It was insane. It was insane. And so I ran around, I smoked weed. I mean, I broke my ankle in, in Boulder at one point. I was running down Pearl Street. This is actually the winter before I graduated from college. And I ran down the street. I broke my ankle in three places. And this is like, okay, so this is my life. I break my ankle. I could feel myself breaking my ankle. I was like, oh, my God, something cracked. Did anybody hear that? They're like, oh, come on, Busy. Let's just go to the bar. Busy's my nickname. So I go to the bar. One guy's like, I'm a lawyer. I'm a, I'm a med student. I'm starting to be a paramedic. I am a paramedic. Let me help you. Let me help you. Three days before anybody took me, we partied the entire time. My foot was like I had elephantitis or something of my foot. It was so <laughs> huge. No one, no one wanted to take me to the doctor. Yeah. I finally get somebody to take me. I said to the doctor, oh, my God. He's like, it's broken in three places. We're going to have to cut you open and put in screws. And, da, 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 da. and I looked at him, and I said, wrap it up. I'm taking it back to the East Coast. I took it back to the East Coast. I ended up getting a cast. But that was my life. Like, yeah. that's an example of my life. It was just like, all right, that was done. Wrap it up. we got to get back and party. I went to Ireland with that cast. It was a Redskins cast, and the Redskins won the Super Bowl. I mean, I was crazy. Joe Gibbs was the coach. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, 1992. 1992, okay, 92. Yeah, okay. 92. Yeah. Joe Gibbs. Joe Gibbs was the coach of the Washington Yeah, Redskins. they beat the Bills in Minnesota. Okay, so okay. we're going to keep go. we're going to keep going. So now how do you, you – you're out in Colorado. You're out in Boulder. How does the progression out, keep going? So then, 
I, I, so again, I'm partying, partying, partying. And now all of my girlfriends are graduating and it's time to leave Boulder. And I'm like, all right, where are you guys going? And one of my friends was going to South America to Guatemala to go teach. And then my other friend was going to California. And I had had another friend that was in California and I called my mother and I said, I want to move to, I want to move to California. And she's like, I'm not helping you move to California. You need to come back to Philadelphia. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is horrible. I have to move to Philadelphia. This is terrible. So I moved back to Philadelphia. And at this point, I, so I've always wanted to be the next Barbara Walters um, and to interview people and all that sort of stuff. So I'm a communications degree and I get a job at the CBS affiliate in Philadelphia. And I'm working, I'm a personal assistant to the top three anchors of the CBS affiliate. Um, and I had also worked at WOGL, Oldies 98 radio station, yeah. and I worked there as a temp. And I got into, and it was now, this is my dream, okay? My dream job is happening. And because of my mouth and my drinking, you know, loose lips and chips, and I start talking about the anchors one night when I was drinking, because at that point there were two anchors. One of them might have been in another relationship and shouldn't have been in the relationship with the other anchor. And I opened my mouth about it, and I lost my job. Now, at the same time, I just met this guy and, and um, who ends up becoming my husband. But at that point, he had enough funds to support us. And so I left. So I left. I got fired. I got let go from, from WPVI, I think it was. And um, I left there, was devastated. And, um, I was playing house with this guy and I said to him, if we don't get married within a year, I'm breaking up with you. So within the year we were married and, um, I really played house and I started a concierge business and that was kind of cool, but I'm still drinking. I'm yeah. married. How much are you drinking at this point? Well, I'm a weekend warrior. So I'm like, I'm drinking, but I'm not drinking every day, but okay. when I drink, I get drunk. I, when I drink, I get drunk and my husband drank the same way I did. So it was perfect because we both drank the same way. Now, fast forward to 1996, I get pregnant with my son, Ken, and I get pregnant with him and I have this concierge business. And I say to my husband, my then husband, we want to take this over. Well, I'm not going to go into his story, but that didn't end up working out. And, yeah. um, and I had, so the minute I found out I was pregnant was the crazy thing. So I drank three bottles of wine with one of my dear friends uh, the night before. I, and I was smoking a cigarette. And, I, and the pregnancy test comes out. I'm, I'm pregnant. And at that point, I stopped drinking. I stopped right there. I yeah. didn't drink for nine months. Was that hard? Me, or is that just a motherly instinct? It was my motherly instinct. It was like, this is my, this is my baby. I have my baby this is what they say you're supposed to do you're not supposed to drink you're not supposed to smoke so I quit smoking a quick routine but the minute I gave birth I sent my ex-husband out to buy, I'm like go buy a bottle of champagne and buy me a pack of cigarettes and I snuck into the hospital I snuck into the stairwell and smoked cigarettes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now mind you I had another child in 97 and then I had another child in 99 and, I will speak um, from experience by the way all these these three kids are awesome these are great kids, too. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I think that ties, you. and we'll get down to the road to that, but that ties a lot into to your communication and you being a sober mom. And I see the way you connect with them, and it's pretty authentic and pretty unbelievable. 
thank you so much, Pete. That really means the world. And I'm not kidding because it's like they are my life. And um, so when I, so, you know, at this point I'm drinking and I'm now, now I have three babies and I, I mean, I remember at one point, like we did lines in one of their bedrooms. They weren't there. I sent them out. We were having a party and they were at my mother's. And I remember like doing lines in my kids' bedrooms and it was like, it was getting bad. Like we were drinking and doing drugs, my husband and I, my ex-husband and I, and it was getting really, really bad. And I was really getting scared. And um, now I have three babies and my ex-husband, now I'm kind of trying to keep everything, I'm trying to juggle my life with three little kids and a husband that drinks the same way I do. And it was insane. And I feel like the way to just relate it to people is like, I felt like I was walking around with this humongous backpack on my back that weighed like 800 pounds. It was loaded with bricks. And my ex-husband wasn't my child. He was someone else's child, right? So, mm-hmm. and I, I can't be his mom, but I'm like screaming and yelling at him all the time. And I'm like, you're drinking too much, you're drinking too much. Now at this point, he's hiding his alcohol. I was never a hider of alcohol. I always did it. In, I always did it in public. I always was at bars. I was always at parties. I'd always push the limit, but he would hide his. And I was like, "Oh my God, you're hiding it. You're hiding it." And I had forced him to get sober. Now, I also want to interject here. I had two siblings that got sober when they were young. So I again, I knew what AA was. I knew what a twelve-step group was. I knew what all this stuff. I knew what having an alcohol problem was, but it was not me. It was everybody else. Yeah, me too. Well, and also it was the last club I wanted to join. I mean, tooth and nail, I fought, you know, getting sober and and going to meetings. Oh my! So, like for me, I was like, that is the like, I would be having like a big party at my house, not black tie, but really fancy valet parkers. I'd have people serving people. And my siblings would come and stand in the corner and they would have their freaky hair, chain smoking cigarettes, and they'd be sober and talking about the big book and all this stuff. And I'd be like, you guys are losers. Are you sure you want to be in my party? Are you sure you don't want to drink? I mean, you guys look like such losers. What are you doing? I mean, literally, I would do that. I'd be like, you guys, are, oh my God, look at Terry Nicole. They're so strange. Look at them. Oh my God, they're so Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So I... um. I was mortified about the whole like getting sober and that sort of thing. She's like, I'm like social register. Like I'm in these, I'm going to the, I, you know, if there's like a social climbing, I'm at the top of the ladder. right? Yeah. So I am like, I'm hanging out at the best parties doing all these crazy things. And the last thing I want to do is go hang out with the people that are sitting in the corner chain, smoking cigarettes with their hair cut short and talking about God in a big book. I'm like, they are losers. Like, come on, what kind of jeans did you buy last week? Yeah. I'm like, that's what we're talking about. And um, so watching all of this, I, it was just, it was there. I was so, so anyway, I send my husband. I finally, I get him to leave my house. His drinking's taken the next level. I don't want anything to do with him. I've sent him to, and now he's going to AA meetings. He's coming back and telling me about it. And I'm going, you're such a loser. He's like, do you want to come? I'm like, no, I don't want to come. Get yeah. me another freaking bottle of Pinot Grigio. Yeah. I can't stand you. I don't, I, you know, I was done. And he'd be like, oh, I went to this meeting. I'm like, good for you. Find someone who cares. It's not me. So um, fast forward, I finally get him out of my house. And now I'm really, I, now my partying, it's like I'm in college again. My kids are- You get them out of the house. Do you mean you get separated or? 
I get separated okay. I, I, and I'm like about to get divorced. Now, mind you, I came from such dysfunction when my parents got divorced that it was really imperative to me that my kids had a relationship with both me and their dad. Okay. Right. So I did 50-50 joint custody from day one. I looked at him and I was like, what was yours was yours and what's mine is mine and let's just split the kids. And um, I don't know if that was the best thing to do or not. I have no idea, but for me, it's what I needed to do. But every time they'd leave, it felt like a part of my heart was leaving. So my kids would leave and go to their dads and I would party like it was like 1987 again. And um, I'd jump on planes. I dated a guy who got the promise out west. At a, at, in a different city, and I go see him. Who had what out west? Who had what? I, I, I didn't hear you. He, he was a gossip columnist. Oh, one okay. of the papers nice. out um, in the west, um, western, uh, western United States. Yeah. And um, I saw him all the time, and I was jetting around with him, and I'm partying my butt off. And I remember I'd go to, like, I'd go and I'd see people, and they'd be like, oh my God, Biggie, you look great. You're going to this divorce, and you look fabulous and I'd be like oh my god give me another dirty martini <laughs> another dirty martini and I was all about the outside so I would always have the best shoes the best handbags the best outfit on but I didn't want anybody to know what was inside of me which was I was dying I was literally dying on the inside I had no idea who I was I had three kids I had an ex-husband. I had bought houses, now big houses. I bought cars. I sent my kids to the right prep schools. I've like, I've been going around my whole entire life for 37 years, pretending to be something, right? Yeah. What everybody else wanted me to be, you know. I'm and here they are. The outsides look great, and you're dying. And the outsides look. I mean, I they're like, look, you look great. You look great. You look great. And I'm like, oh my god. And you know, the end of my story, I always, you know, I'm, I'm walking around, running around with Gucci loafers, hanging out in East Hampton. I'm going to the best parties. I'm going, I'm, I'm Palm Beach. I'm doing all that stuff, right? And I am totally don't even know who I am. I have no idea who I am. And I am so lost. And my kids are with their dad every other weekend. Now he starts drinking. I mean, it was just shit show what a like, mess i swear to god it's like shameless it's like that show shameless was <laughs> but i wasn't hanging out in the slums of chicago i was in the better you know i was in the best zip code where they supposedly don't have these things you know they only have these down in the bad neighborhoods no they have them in the good neighborhoods too let me tell you um so i'm in and i am sitting there and i am and i'm gonna fast forward to the end of my story which yeah. is so my sister gets married my, one of my sisters was marrying a guy who had been sober for over two decades. And um, half the wedding, oh, I'll back up. Two, two weeks prior to that, my grandmother had died. My grandmother at 93 had died. And out of eight grandchildren, I was asked to give the eulogy. And I was at a fancy church, and I'm all dressed up. And the night before, I got so drunk. I fell in my kitchen. I broke my ankle. I, like, sprained my ankle. I'm on the pulpit at this church in Gladwin and I'm hysterically crying and I'm dramatic as anything. And if you had brought a match towards my face, I would have blown up. Yeah. I mean, I was so hungover. I got to the country club we belong to outside of Philadelphia. I knew the bartender cause I know all the bartenders and his name is Dick. And I, and I said, Dick said, Elizabeth, you want, what do you want? I said, you know what I want? I want a Pinot Grigio and I want you to keep them coming. He's like, you got it. No problem. <laughs> and I sat there the whole night and that was like my life. I just drank, 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 drank. And, um, so my, so two weeks later, three weeks later, my sister gets married, um, 
and she marries a guy who's been sober for two decades. So half the wedding party is sober. And of course, my parents still had alcohol and my had alcohol at her wedding. And I, um, and I got drunk at the wedding. And I mean, not like that was a big deal. I was like, yeah. shocker. I just got drunk. <laughs> it's a wedding too. <laughs> it's a wedding. I get drunk. I had a dress made. Somebody came up. I, you know, I, I was on stage. I got on stage a lot with fans, even though I can't sing. And, um, I gotten on stage and so, um, I lost my shoes, you know, whatever. But that was like typical, nothing new. And the next day I went, my mother had, a had a brunch for, um, for all the out of town guests the next day. And a gentleman came up to me who was very good looking and he said to me, do you know you're an alcoholic? And what did you say? And I said they're dumbfounded, which, and speechless was normally doesn't happen to me. And, um, I just listened to him and then I walked away. I was kind of like, fuck you. Who are you? Excuse my French, um, to tell me what I am. And, um, I then, I got in the car hours later and I drove to the beach, to the Jersey shore. And, um, I was alone in my car and this alcoholic me, um, I had these thoughts like, am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? I mean, back and forth and back and forth. I get to the beach and my mom's house is like a liquor store. My mom always had my favorite wines and my favorite everything. So somebody said, do you want to drink? And I said, no. And, um, I went to bed that night and I woke up the next day feeling really good. And I said, see, I'm not an alcoholic. So at four o'clock, somebody said, do you want a drink? And I said, sure. And I had a drink and I um, drank until three o'clock in the morning when I was literally sitting at the end of the dock of the bay with my feet hanging in, you know, hanging over the dock and a bottle of booze and a pack of smokes and a cell phone. And I woke up the next morning and I went for a run. And those of you that know me know I do not run unless someone's chasing me. <laughs> and um, I fell to my knees and I said, God, please help me. I can't do this anymore. And that was the last time I drank. And um, what happens after what happens that day? How does the rest of that day play out? How do you make the first steps? Well, I could go back to the house where my sister's having her honeymoon with her whole family. That's a whole nother story. But anyway, she's on her honeymoon with her husband, with all the family there. Okay. So they're there. So the brother-in-law who's sober is there. And I said, da 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 will you help me? I said, I really want to get sober. And they all look at me like I have 10 heads. They're like, what are you talking about? I said, I need to get sober. They're like, no. <laughs> so I'm like, I need to get sober. They're like, oh my God. Cause everybody thought I was going to be the last man standing. Like I was the party. I closed every party, every bar, every, everything. And they were all like, there's no way. And he said, well, if you're serious, you're going to call this person and she'll be able to help you. And so I called this person and this person was, um, is she's still living. Um, she was, um, a mom, she has three kids, she, her drug of choice was heroin, not alcohol. She had gone to the university of Pennsylvania. Remember I went to finishing school. So she was really smart. <laughs> and, um, 
And, but she was like, she was happy and she like had a normal life. It wasn't like insane. Like my life had been for 37 years. Like she had this nice, quiet life. Like it wasn't insane. And I was like, Oh my God. So she's like, are you going to meet me at a meeting? And I met her at a Tuesday night meeting in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And I met her at, um, you know, Tuesday night and it was a huge yeah. room and it is definitely Yale to jail. And it's, 13 to 30 billion years Yale old. to I jail. Mean, that's the second time I've heard that recently. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, what you get so, in these meetings. Right. And that, and that meeting was also very young people too. So kids that were, you know, young high schoolers were still there. And then there were also like old, old men that were there. And so it had everything. And I went in there and I remember that I raised my hand the first time and I said, hi, I'm Elizabeth. I'm an alcoholic. And that was the first time I said that, that and that was, the um and that is where my life really began that's when the lights turned on i was like oh my god i'm an alcoholic oh my god i am an alcoholic that is what has driven my life my entire life i don't even know what it means to feel so i got a therapist she's like how do you feel i'm like what the fuck do you mean how do i feel <laughs> cold or hot i don't know what it, she hands me a sheet and she's like here's all these adjectives and herbs that describe feelings. And I was like, I don't know what this is. Depressed, anxious, anxiety, fear, scared, happy, sad. I didn't know what any of it meant. I, I knew what, I, obviously I'd read the words in books, but what does that feel like? I yeah. didn't know. And then you start to have these feelings. How do, how do you adapt? Like you continue to go to meetings, but some people say, you know, I'm like a raw nerve when I first get sober. How did you you know, walk okay, that tightrope. Well, rope. I will tell you, my first year of sobriety, for one, I listened to this woman for the first time in my life. I'd never listened to anybody in my entire life. I mean, people were like, do this, do that. I'm like, whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. But for some reason, I listened to her. And um, she said, now, you're going to have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, and you're going to have to call me every day. Now, I remember my nickname, Busy. So I'm like, wait a minute, I'm busy. I cannot call you every day and go to one of those meetings every day. She's like, well... If you want what I have, you're going to do what I asked you to do. And I was like, okay. So I did it. I did everything she asked me to do. Now, you know, there's these steps that they do in the 12, there's a 12 step group. And I was like, oh, I'm going to graduate summa cum laude. I'm be <laughs> done with this shit. And, um, and the first year, you know, you go through steps. And for me, it was like a cliff notes version. Like I didn't, couldn't go deep. Like there was no deep going for me. Um, I did the first year. I was so happy. I knew where my car was every single solitary day. Like it was all, all this was all new. Like I'd wake up in the morning and be like, oh my God, my car's where I left it. Oh my God. Everybody, like my life is kind of manageable. My kids, I can make their blankets. Oh my God. I can go to the grocery store. I can buy how was that being a mom the first like couple months or the first year sober, like relating with your kids? You know, mothers get sober now. I think that's, I just can't imagine that's easy, the integration. Well, Henry was six, okay? And Kent was, so Henry's Henry your youngest. Was, I, Henry's my baby. So Kent was, Kent turned 10 in, Kent had turned 10 in July. Hadley was still eight. She was turning nine in in November and Henry was going to turn seven in December. So they're still little, right? And they are like, what are you doing, mom? And I'm like, I'm going to a meeting. I'm going to a meeting. And they would look at me and they'd be like, it's time for you to go to a meeting, mom. Mom, you need to go to a meeting. Mom, you need to go to a meeting. And I 
I took myself out of society, and I put that in air quotes again, as a whole for a year. And people may say, well, why did you do that? Well, I did my kids, but I didn't do, like, I stopped going to parties. I stopped going to fundraisers. I stopped doing all of the stuff I used to do. And I just went to meetings and I just went to meetings and I got sober. That's what I did. And I related to like, when you get a plant and you put it in the ground and you water it and you fertilize it, like that was me. I didn't know what my favorite color was. I thought it was green, but it's really orange. I didn't know what made me tick. I didn't know how to maneuver life. Right. I just I had no idea. And I had three little kids. So it was just, I was just learning. It was like a kid, like learning how to walk. It was brand new. And I took, like, I didn't have a husband. So that was kind of easy for me. So I didn't have anybody I had to answer to. So I went to meetings and I got sober and I do these steps and I go to step studies and I go to meetings everywhere. And if I got bored in my neighborhood, I'd go to New York City and go for, I mean, it's an hour and a half drive from Philadelphia. Yeah. I'd go to a meeting in New York. I'd go to a meeting in downtown Center City. I would go, I just bounced around and just did this and just met people and just went and did stuff. And I didn't date for the first year because I said, don't date. And um, so my first You followed, all, you're I telling had, me you followed all the suggestions. Everything they told me to do, I did. You were willing to go to any lengths. And I still am today. And did it start to make you feel fulfilled? Like when did, when did the lights? you mentioned the lights came on, when did they start to shine bright in your soul, make you feel good? I feel like today I've had a long, it's been a long, steady recovery. And for me, recovery is so encompassing in so many things like because I believe that to realize that I'm powerless over alcohol like how long does it like but not only am I powerless over alcohol I'm powerless over everything like everything I have no idea I can sit here and I can plan and I can put everything that I think that you need to make the perfect cake and it still doesn't come out right right like I know that I don't know what really going to happen. Okay. So I had to really, after that first year, it was really, I don't know how long it took me to really feel, okay, I'm powerless. I have no idea. That's a big thing. Okay. I'm powerless over my kids. I'm powerless over the future. I'm powerless over what's going to happen and what isn't going to happen. I'm powerless over everything. I was standing on my honeymoon in a parking lot in Maui. Hawaii. This is your second husband. A, my second husband. And a ballistic missile was coming. And we had no power, right? You, that's the exact definition of powerless. But how do you feel that in your heart? Like that takes a long time. So that, so what life has been like for me since the recovery, it's like I watch God working in my life all the time. And somebody's going to say, now, is it God like Jesus Christ that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and was he there? Was he not there? It's not that for me. Okay. God for me is good orderly direction. God for me is the sun rising and the sun setting. It happens every day. I've learned that I live life in 24 hour seg seg segments pretty much. Um, I don't, 
I'm not a huge planner in my life. I'm not, a, I don't remember dates very well. I don't remember timing very well. The only reason I know my sobriety date is because it, it's whatever it's to my brain. Sometimes I'm like, well, it's August of, you know, 2006. But what has, um, my, my life has transpired today is, um, I am all about helping other alcoholics. I'm all about being present. I'm all about telling the truth. I am all about, um, you know, I don't want to judge anybody today. My life is not about judging people because our whole life, right now we live in a society that's all about judgment. We judge if you voted for this person or you voted for that person. We judge if you get the vaccine or if you don't get the vaccine. We judge if you do this right or you do that right. And all it does is separate us and take us away from the sunlight of the spirit. And all I want to do is live in the sunlight of the spirit. How do you, how do do you is, help other alcoholics? How do I help other alcoholics? Well, I sponsor people. Now, I will tell you, I did not sponsor anybody for a really long time <laughs> because I sponsor people in the very beginning and they all drink. So I was like, you know what? I'm not sponsoring ever again. I make, because it's all about me. Now, it takes a long time for it not to be all about you. I, at least for me. This alcoholic, here I am 15 years later, but for a long time, it was still all about me. It's all about me. But, you know, in just the last couple of years, I've been sponsoring a lot of people. and um, I give back by sponsoring people. I, um, so I will reverse a little bit of my story. So when I, so when I was first sober, I sold cars, I sold real estate. Um, when I was still drinking, I did a job on online. I sold gifts on QVC. I was a, I was a, a guest host on QVC mm-hmm. for a long time. I've done all these different jobs. So when I had a couple years sober, a friend of mine from St. Louis reached out to me and he said, did you ever think thought about being a recovery coach? And I said, what's that? And he's like, well, you help people, you know, it's kind of like, you're like, kind of like a sponsor, but you're not a sponsor, but you're kind of like a sponsor. And I'm like, okay. And, um, so I went and I studied under, under a guy in Texas and I became a certified recovery specialist. And I would give talks in my town in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And I'd go and I'd have this thing called Let's Talk. And I'd want all these people to come, but no one ever comes. Just wants to hear about alcoholism. <laughs> I do it anyway. And um, you were there. You were on my panel once. Yeah. And, I mean, it was awesome. Um, yeah, it was really awesome. But no one ever really came. So yeah. um, it was falling on deaf ears. Um, I will tell you a crazy story. So I was asked, again, I'm terrible at timing. I want to say five or, five or six years ago. I was asked by a dear friend of mine who's an attorney if I wanted to come. She was having a roundtable discussion with these women in Center City, Philadelphia. At this point, I'm a recovery coach. I'm seeing clients. I'm doing my let's talk. I'm helping, other, I'm helping families with their children that are addicts. And um, I'm doing that. And this woman invites me down to this roundtable. And she said, why don't you come and down to this thing? And I'm like, okay. So I go down there. And I'm like, look at me. I'm just, you know, I always... I always put myself down back then. Like, look, I'm just a mom. Mm-hmm. I'm just a recovery coach. I'm not whatever. I'm not that great. Whatever. You know, I'm doing this. So I show up and like, there's the president of Susan B. Corman of Philadelphia. There's the president of some other major corporation that's sitting over here. I mean, it was all these really powerful women. And, um, and I mean, powerful in that they had great careers. And there was a woman that was giving a talk there and it was called her company's called zero to five and it's a marketing firm and her name's michelle pajayas and she she was talking about taking a company from zero to five 
Now I had taken my business, you know, I, I started my business. I came up with the name, then I got the place to rent. Like I had no plan. Yeah. So you're supposed to have a plan, right? <laughs> you know, you're supposed to have a plan, but yeah. I've never had a plan. So um, I don't, it's not like you get ready, you shoot and you aim. No, you ready, then you aim and then you shoot. <laughs> I was like, ready, I shot and then I aimed and did all the stuff. So anyway, I met her and she liked, at that point I was really, um, I was talking about sober, not ashamed. And that was my huge tagline. Breaking, you know, you know teach, breaking the stigma. I was all about breaking the stigma. And, and you really helped. Let me, let me uh, put this back on you. You really helped me. I mean, you planted the seed for me early on because I would do those panels with you and I would speak and I felt very good about my message. And I knew at the end of the day, I was doing the right thing because it just felt so right. Uh, if I'd never done that with you, I don't know that I would have felt how, how good and how right that can be. Um, and I, and I just feel like it's, I'm not here to tell everybody to do it, but it certainly worked for me. I know people need their anonymity or want their anonymity, but yeah, to break the stigma with you, uh, felt real good. You know, you got me out there. So I appreciate that. Well, I have to tell, thank you, Pete. And it was an honor and getting you to do that. And you and I did some, some really cool stuff together when you were in Philly still and you yeah. were, you know, you, it was really awesome. Actually, Pete and I helped. Um, we put together a meeting that's actually still in existence. It kicks today. ass. Yeah, it's a, it's a great I know, meeting. It's yeah. crazy. Mm -hmm. And we would sit there talking about what we wanted it to be like. Do you remember that? We're like, are we really going to do this? We'd be sitting in my red front room. Do you remember that? Yeah, and and it's <laughs> but the, and, and that is that's AA, right? It's two alcoholics sitting together. Um, Anna was there too uh, in, your, yeah. in your in your front room, and we put together this yeah. this meeting. You put together the meeting. We were pretty much there, and uh, that meeting is incredible. It's so. I'm on a Zoom meeting now over the course of the pandemic as it starts to wind down a little. And I met a guy, Brad, who was like, yeah, I basically got sober at that meeting. I'm like, that's, you know, and you don't say, hey, I started that meeting. But it's like, yeah, I was there. You think in your mind, hey, I was there when it started. Like, that is incredible. You know, and that's AA. So it's so amazing. So I will go. So sober and I ashamed. I will tell you, there's another dear friend of mine who lives in Denver. And he he called me during the pandemic. And he, because I've been... Uh, let me back up. So anyway, I go to see Michelle Pajayas. She takes me on pro bono. My nickname being busy. She's like, why don't you start, why don't you start being called busy living sober? And I'm like, okay, I'm busy living sober. And then they said, why don't you start a podcast? And I was like, what is a podcast? Okay. I had no idea. I'm 52 years old. I had no idea what a podcast <laughs> was three years ago. I had no idea. And so I ended up doing this podcast, which I still do to this day called busy living sober. What's it called? It's I called busy living, living sober. Busy Living Sober, and it's okay. spelled B-U-S-Y, Living Sober. And um, so I did that, and I have guests writing to me all the time wanting to come on. In March, I just, in February, actually, I decided I needed to take a hiatus because I was booking in July. Yeah. And I was like, this is just too crazy. I need to take a break. Um, but Busy Living Sober is all about getting busy living sober in the day. Um, we, a lot of us walk around with a lot of shame from yesterday, which is why in the beginning I started busy with, I'm so we're not ashamed because there is so much shame. I was so ashamed to ask for help. I was so ashamed to be an alcoholic. I was so ashamed to be that air quote alcoholic that they describe on television. I was so ashamed and I, sober, not ashamed is all about being not ashamed. You have, there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no shame that needs to be there. And busy living sober is like, I've got to get busy living sober today. Yesterday's gone. Nobody in the world's going to bring back yesterday. It's already gone. 
And the other day is the other thing I can't worry about is tomorrow. It's not here yet. So it's all about getting busy living in today. And I say, like when I was talking earlier about how I stay sober today, it's all one day at a time. I wake up in the morning. I meditate before I get out of bed. I know a lot of people get out of bed and they meditate and they sit a certain way and they do a certain thing. I lay in bed. I listen to a meditation. I get out of bed. I say, God, please help me. I started a meeting in the pandemic right the day of like the, my husband works in, um, in the market. So he's like, no more going out. It's over. We can't go out anymore. And I'm like, what? And he's like, you've got to stop. We've got to start. And I had a friend who was in town from who lives in Fort Lauderdale and also lives in Normandy, France. Uh-huh. And she's like, I've got to go back to Europe. And I'm, what am I going to do? I'm like, all right, let's start a Zoom meeting. So I started a meeting every day that happens on Zoom. And that's daily the information on busy living sober. How cool is that, though? And it's fun. one of those things, too. I think you flex a muscle. This is anything in sobriety for me. You flex a muscle like, oh, I know how to start a meeting. And now you now it's second nature. There's so much. There's so many walls we actually go through in sobriety, like positive things that we don't realize. And that's why the meter is always moving. You talked about the fact that you don't know how to plan anything or put anything together. And, and, and over time, right, like, the, like we're never done. And I think that sometimes I miss out on that message. And I know that other people in my life that are sober do. We're never finished. We continue to learn. Oh, my God. And if you don't, like I am, you know, somebody was talking about being perfectionist. Like, I thank God I don't have that. If you you can see the room I'm looking at, like I'm totally an imperfectionist. You know, (laughs) I do things today and I try things and it's okay if I'm not good at it. I started painting. I painted all these crazy birds during COVID. It was like, and uh, you know, my mother always said, you can't paint. You don't know how to paint. And I'm like, well, I might not be Van Gogh, okay? <laughs> and I might not be George O'Keefe. But I really just like the action of getting and painting. And I think it's fun. It gets me out of my head. It gets me doing something creative. I, um, I am all about letting go today letting go is was one of the hardest things for me and um I think it's very hard for a lot of human beings we wake up in the morning and we have this list that we make and and I always recommend for people today like make your list in pencil don't make it in pen um you know we we want to change something about ourselves and we always want to make it hugely dramatic yeah I was talking to um actually one of my sponsors the other day and she's I'm like well I really want you start meditating and she's like i'm gonna start meditating 10 minutes a day and i was like whoa girl slow down what if you did one minute a day yeah like one minute is a lot every day 60 seconds is a lot like we always want to do and i get it go big or go home i get that i have that mentality still within me but learning how to just slow it down take a deep breath realize that everything is going to work out the exact way it's supposed to work out. You know, if you, if you hear anybody who's hugely successful or anybody actually, and and I don't know, and success is, uh, can be measured on all different meters, right? It doesn't, it's not always financial. It's totally, it's like how you are spiritually, how you are physically. There's so many different things, but realizing that you see all these people that if, you hear their journeys. It's like most of them didn't really do anything. Like I didn't do anything to get to that boardroom except for say, yes, sure, I'll come to your boardroom. And the lady said, do you want to come to my office? And I said, sure, yes, I'll come do that. And then somebody said, do you want to start a podcast? And I said, sure, yeah, I'll try it. 
Like if I say yes and I stay open, mm-hmm. and obviously these are the healthy things, then my life can be this amazing, beautiful thing. But if I say no, because my fear is so big, that I'm not going to do it perfectly. Not everybody's going to like me. Not everybody's going to think that I'm the greatest thing in the world. I'm not going to do it then. I'm going to say, you know what? No, I can't do it because I don't know how to do it. And I've never done it before. And I'm too scared. I'm not going to try it. And it's just, that's not what we're here for. No. We're here to do and see and be open to new experiences that God has in for us. And that's the last thing you expect when you get sober to, to live in an existence like that. But that's that's what waits for you if you work it the whole way. Look, we're coming up on the hour. Any? Do you have anything else? You you got to be in a boardroom. I, I do think. have a board meeting at four o'clock. Uh, and, um, so go ahead. And but I was going to say this is that you know we I didn't realize how small my life was when I was drinking. I didn't realize what a prison it really was when I was drinking. Because when you're drinking the way I drank, all I thought about was where I was going to get it, how I was going to get it, how I was going to not get it, how I was not going to be on over, how I was going to be on over, how I was going to get there, how I wasn't going to get home. How was I going to like myself? How was I not going to like myself? My life was teeny and small. But the minute I tried to, when I changed and decided to get sober, my life became like so full of color <laughs> and so amazing. And before it was just, ah. I'm going to end with this. I was talking to these women today. I was in a meeting and I was talking to, they were, it was after the meeting and we were talking about how, you know, no, I know, I know what it was. A sponsor wrote to me and she goes, is it weird? This girl is like 300 days. She goes, is it weird that I just get so excited when I see the flowers outside and I see the plants coming up out of the ground and I see the birds? And I said, it's not weird at all. Because during our when I was drinking, I, I missed all that. I missed the birds. I missed the crocuses coming out of the ground. I missed the buds on the trees. I missed all that. Today, life is spectacular. And all I have to do is not pick up a drink and surrender each day. What does God want me to see today? I don't know. Bring it. I'm ready. <laughs> all right. Anything else you want to leave? Any? So it's Busy Living Sober is the podcast. Busy Living Sober. Are you going to let me share this on my podcast? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll send you. Yeah, we'll send yeah. you the file. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. It's Busy Living Sober. And you can find me. I have a YouTube channel. I am on Spotify. I'm on iTunes, I am on all that. Or you can even just go to my website and look at all my stuff on my website. And what's that? What's the website? BusyLivingSober.com. B-U-S-Y Living, L-I-B-I-N-G, Sober, S-O-B-E-R.com. Reach out. Pick up the phone. Don't pick up a drink. (laughs) Biz, I love you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Petey. All right. When are you coming on mine? Um, Whenever you want. Give me a date. All right. You tell me when are you free? Um, we can maybe do it maybe later this week or early next week. Early next week. I'm playing in a golf tournament. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. All right. Yeah. I'll call, I'll call, I'll call you. Uh, I'll call, call you. Call me. Okay. I'll call you. When should I call you tomorrow? I'll call you tomorrow. Call me tomorrow afternoon. I'm playing teeing off at 830 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right. Okay? Get him straight. Now, wait a minute. What's his name? John Mike. What's your name? Mike. Mike Hamilton. Hamilton. 
Yeah, he's the man. Mike Hamilton. Thank you so much, Mike Hamilton. <laughs> I hope we entertained you. Stay safe in Waco. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 